This is part two of my uh, one John Forbes a day uh, experiment. One one dose of speed a pastoral a day. Um, I'm looking at my notes here from when I started and I've got maximum 1.5 minutes per recording. What was I going to do in 1.5 minutes? Jesus Christ. It is Wednesday the 17th of August. It is a little bit warmer than it has been. Last night I got uh, the most beautiful email from Ken Bolton. Ken was a friend of John's um, and I I really felt like it was important to bring him in. And yeah, he just, he just wrote me this beautiful, beautiful thing. I'm going to read all of it. Hi, Alice. You possibly know my long essay on Forbes poetry. It's on the jacket site. Just Google jacket Ken Bolton, John Forbes. Uh, I didn't know that essay, Ken, but I've read about half of it this morning and it is delightful. No surprise. Ken quotes from the essay where he talks about this poem. Speed, a pastoral, is one many like and which draws much commentary, partly because it is seized upon as stating some position concerning the canon of Australian poetry, Australian poetry imagined as a classroom. I like the constant shift of purpose and attitude and the shift from depression to resolve, vis-a-vis Dransfield's leaving the room too soon. The sir, sir joke is very funny and heroin let him leave the room very crushing so that's what ken writes in that essay and then he goes on to say in the email people tend to remember the last lines and the poem propels you there fast enough suddenly you've arrived and they are then interesting because they have an ingenuous probably disingenuous air of being clear and obvious though they're not How is this response to a notional Keats and Flaubert less negative? Not that this matters. The poem is happy to be a kind of Rubik's Cube, a puzzle tied up and declared finished, poet or poem comically sitting up straight, arms folded, I've finished the sum, sir, John might call. The phrase, well, I think he died too soon, is great, but it's that one word, well, that does a lot of work. It makes the rest a rejoinder to the negative purities of Flaubert and Keats. I have no idea about what these might have been, but the poem frog marches the reader past any questions like these. It's slightly bullying and funny for being all these things. Brusque, burly, no fine airs. The midsection where John gives an indication of how he viewed negatively his own drug use always draws my attention. Maliciously, one might wonder how John would propose the teacher Speed would handle John's own early exit. John was enough a Catholic to be pretty constantly examining his conscience. But these are ironies I wouldn't try on John. I mean now. He's gone. His poem is a good one. It can't be required to stand every test of its thesis. It has a thesis only for form's sake anyway. Though I suppose John profited from the poems seeming to say something deliciously wicked, tough-minded, true. Plus, it's a pot shot at another poet. Ha ha, literary biffo. People always love to see that. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> so great. So good. All right, that's Wednesday.
late in the day on Thursday. Weird, panicky day. Don't seem to be able to calm down. Back to the poem. Consuming yourself like a mortgage is the line that I totally blanked on when I was trying to remember the poem at the end of part one. I think this might be the most confusing line in the poem, but instead of doing backflips, trying to figure out how a mortgage might consume itself or not, what I decided to do, uh, or what I started to notice as I read through the collected up until the point where Forbes writes this poem, is that he loves an imprecise and weird simile. He's really, really happy to say X is like Y uh, when it isn't at all, when it just doesn't quite match up. So I went through and I listed out um, a bunch of examples of this. So we have Julie breathing like a t-shirt after a swim. She moves like a heat wave in December. This clears the room for you like a pirouette. Like a law of karma that will never improve you. Shining and translucent like a pole. That's P-O-L-L, political pole. Like a Hollywood Arabian Nights version of the Hydro Majestic plonked down on the Birdsville track. The poem sounds like a revolving door that makes the noise a car makes bumping into the doll. Blood draws back like a day in the country. Like a packet of bungers facing Mecca. And this isn't quite the same thing, but uh, I enjoyed it. More lyrical than fellatio. So given all that, I'm not going to worry too much about consuming yourself like a mortgage. (laughs) I'm giving myself permission to just let that one lie. It's Friday. Just got done recording with Matthew about half an hour ago. I was awake until 5.30 a.m. I can remember talking to David Brooks, uh, who I was also, I was sleepless before I interviewed him, obviously, because I was very afraid of doing a bad job. And uh, I remember he, uh, he was so kind and just so lovely to me. And he said, um, he tried to kind of tell me that I would get used to it, you know, that like eventually I would make make friends with the sleeplessness, but I don't want to. I really I really don't want to and it's it's gotten so bad this last month. Like 5:30 is not a not a time that I usually see on the on the clock without at least being asleep for for some of the time. And yeah, I guess I was thinking about the poem and I was just like, I'm kind of, I'm doing the opposite, right? Like I'm awake thinking and it's not fun. It's that thinking that's bad for you. That's all the explanation you require. The theme of your podcast isn't how to fuck around and... Yeah, how to fuck around. And achieve nothing. <laughs> so what do you want to do? Um, 
Good morning. It is raining, as you may know. I hope your games were fun last night. Um, I'm going to send you this poem that I mentioned. This poem. And yeah, just really interested in any response at all that you have to it. Good, bad, indifferent. If it leaves you completely cold. Whatever you think is great. Let me know whenever you care to. It's quarter to nine on Saturday night. Been out all day at my friend's hen's party, which began at 10.30 a.m. with live drawing, cheeky live drawing with champagne, followed by lunch with champagne. But now I'm home and... I'm still thinking about this poem and we're at the line where Keats comes to dine, Keats or Flaubert, and I'm just, I'm just really stumped as to why Flaubert is in this poem at all. Keats makes sense. The way I'm reading this poem is it's about, it's about checking out from poetry. It's about ignoring the idea of becoming a great poet. So Keats sits really comfortably in there but as far as I can tell Flaubert didn't write a single line of poetry he definitely didn't write any poems that we that we know him for so why is he there is it just because the line and when Keats comes to dine or Flaubert has a nice kind of rhythm to it Ken did say you know the poem can't can't be made to stand every test of its thesis but it, I don't know, it just seems like such a, such a strange choice. As I was Googling around, though, trying to figure out whether Flaubert had written any poetry, I was reminded of this poem of Jane Kenyon's called Thinking of Madame Bovary. And this I found really helpful. The poem goes like this. The first hot April day, the granite step was warm. Flies droned in the grass. When a car went past, they rose in unison, then dropped back down. I saw that a yellow crocus bud had pierced a dead oak leaf, then opened wide. How strong its appetite for the luxury of the sun. Everyone longs for love's tense joy and red delights. And then I spied an ant dragging a ragged, disembodied wing up the warm brick walk. It must have been the Methodist in me that leaned forward, preceded by my shadow, to put a twig just where the ant was struggling with its own desire. Struggling with its own desire seems like a pretty good summation of the way I'm reading this poem, at least up to this point. So... Yeah, that, that, that helps a little, but um, I think that's going to have to remain just as mysterious as consuming yourself like a mortgage. Like, I don't know why Flaubert is in here. Maybe you do. If you do, please tell me. Before I went to bed last night, I listened to an episode of the London Review of Books podcast because I'm fancy like that, and 
it was Julian Barnes talking about Flaubert, a lifetime of reading Flaubert, something like that. And it really helped me with this section of the poem because I understand now why Keats and Flaubert are paired in this way, or at least I, I think I do. I have a new theory. So listening to Julian Barnes talk about Flaubert, I started to understand a bit more about who he was as a writer. He was very obsessive. He was perfectionistic. Everything in his life came second to his writing, including his relationship. There was a little anecdote in the podcast about how he told his girlfriend, look, people who are in love cannot see each other for 10 years and be perfectly happy which stood out to me as an example of of complete and utter bullshit. So if I take these lines all together, and when Keats comes to dine, or Flaubert, you can answer their purities with your own less negative ones. The word purities is starting to stand out to me now. Both Keats and Flaubert now seem like examples of serious writers, you know, people who who put writing at the very top of their list of priorities in life. I can remember listening to another podcast about Keats writing Endymion and just about how just desperately important it was to him that this poem was going to make his name. And it didn't. It was a huge failure. But yeah, I think both he and Flaubert work as examples of people for whom writing was the only thing. So when people like that come around, that kind of purity, if you're not that kind of a writer or if you're in a bit of a moment where you don't feel like that kind of a writer, you sort of need something to come back with against that purity. And the way that Forbes puts it is just so brilliant. I misremembered this when I was trying to recite the poem at the end of part one. I said, your own more positive ones. But less negative is so much better, right? Because it's not that you're positive. You're just slightly less negative than they are. So it's, it's starting to come together. It's starting to come together. This is the part of the poem that, um, yeah, I've just been working up to this whole month, just going, what am I going to say about that? I don't understand it at all. But it's, it's starting to make sense. Actually, I nearly forgot. Lou hit on this when she was discussing the poem as well. Stay up all night not writing those reams of poetry. Just thinking about is bad for you. Uh, I, I'm also on the topic of poems that are about poetry. I'm also particularly interested in poems about poetry that uh, kind of critique the poetic life because in some ways it is quite disordered that you spend so much time in your head and and a lot of time kind of necessarily alone just with your own thoughts. It's it's not very healthy or balanced and it it can uh, take over Uh, and it can kind of, without sounding too dramatic, it can kind of ruin your life in, in a way that a drug addiction can. Monday morning, welcome back. I've been contacting a few people about this poem alongside Ken and one of the common themes that I'm finding is that everybody who I talk to about this poem and about Forbes 
has at least three recommendations of either other people I should talk to or other things I should read. It is really remarkable. And one of the other common things I found is that there's more than one example of somebody who has written a poem in response to Speed of Pastoral. Yesterday, I was having a bit of back and forth with Alan Wern. Alan was a close friend of John's, and when he was, when Alan was a teacher at University of Wollongong, he taught Forbes poetry to his students. And this has obviously had an impact on at least one of his students, whose mobile phone number I now have. So he's about to get a call from some lady he's never heard of before, asking him about a poem he wrote 10 years ago. Apparently, he hasn't really written much since. I think he now owns a, a skateboard shop. Uh, yeah, this is going to be weird. Let, let's see what happens. Hey, Ben, my name's Alice. Alan Wern gave me your number. <laughs> I'm keen. I'm keen. How are you? That's good. Thanks for entertaining this this strange call from someone you've never heard of about a poem you wrote uh, 10 years ago. 23 years ago. I stand corrected. <laughs> well, that was totally delightful and very strange. Apparently, this ex-student of Alan's, Ben Michelle, hasn't thought about poetry in many, many years, but just yesterday was talking to a friend about how he used to write poems and then right afterwards heard from Alan and today heard from me so his life just got extremely odd <laughs> sorry Ben <laughs> I can't explain it I don't know what's happening um, hopefully he will send his response to Speed of Pastoral and hopefully I can include it a little bit later on Tuesday morning Carlton Gardens check-in I know that John lived in Carlton, but I think it was a bit further north than this. We are pretty much at the city here. Uh, I just thought I'd give this a go. <laughs> see, see if I can do it. Speed, a pastoral. It's fun to take speed and stay up all night. Not writing those reams of poetry, just thinking about it is bad for you. Instead, your feelings follow your career down the drain and find they like it there among an anthology of fine ideas bound together by a chemical in your blood that lets you stare the TV in its vacant face and cheer, consuming yourself like a mortgage. And when Keats comes to dine or Flaubert, you can answer their purities with your own less negative ones. For example, you know Dransfield's line? How once you become a drug addict, you'll never want to be anything else? Well, I think he died too soon. Ah, <laughs> he died too soon. Uh, as if heroin were an old-fashioned school teacher. And he put up his hand and said, sir, sir. And heroin let him leave the room. That's not it. No. Anyway, next time. I heard from Gig Ryan this morning, uh, so hopefully she will 
be part of this as well very soon. I'm very excited. Um, yeah, you know, this whole time I just, when I've been contacting people, there's part of me that's just like, you know, sometimes it does hurt to ask, but hopefully I'm not causing any damage. All right, off to work. It's Wednesday morning. When I couldn't sleep last night, I got up and read to the end of the published poems in the Forbes Collected. So I've now read everything that he published during his life one time through. Comes back to that thing I was talking about at the beginning about, you know, how, how long should you take with poetry in terms of reading? I feel as if I have skimmed the surface and now I know what I want to go back to. There are so many good poems. It's, it's astounding. Um, there's, there's a couple of bad ones, or ones that I don't think are so good. He has an amazing run at one point. I know it, it took a lot of effort to get this book into chronological order, but the section between afternoon papers and death and ode every single poem in that section so he writes afternoon papers he writes a dream which might be my favorite one it's a long poem about o'hara he writes europe a guide for cancel he writes watching the treasurer je ne regret rien and the stunned mullet the Sublime, according to Quine, I think is how you pronounce that. And then Death and Ode. Death, you're more successful than America. Even if we don't choose to join you, we do. He's got, yeah, some of his best lines in that run of poems. And it's interesting because there are kind of sections like that. And then there are sections where he tries a different mode. He starts rhyming at one point. Uh, he tries different formatting tricks. And it doesn't always work. And then... There are these these runs of poems where he just sounds really sad, like really sad and kind of angry. And a lot of the time, especially in the early poems, he sounds a lot like Ashbury. I think uh, Gig Ryan's forward is really useful here where she says, in recent years, Forbes' influence on contemporaries and fans has become apparent. And though the influence of Frank O'Hara and John Ashbury should not be underestimated, his affinity with earlier urban metaphysicals, Brennan, Slessor, Malley, Webb, also seems clearer. Yeah, so I don't, I don't want to try to make a case that he was somehow just aping Ashbury and O'Hara. Definitely not that. But he was pretty into Americans. This starts Don Anderson's introduction to The Forbes Collected. It's this note from Barry Oakley from his diary from 1974. We've just finished a five-day workshop for bright young writers in an old mansion. Though we're supposed to do the talking, John Forbes, a promising poet, prefers to lecture us, especially on the New York School of Poets, Ashbury O'Hara, which he's surprised we know so little about. He sits back in a light haze of marijuana fumes, regarding us with bemused condescension through his rimless glasses, and he looks like an escapee from the Jesuits. Given all that, I'm, I'm really excited to hear how this poem lands to an American. And I happen to know one who I can ask a favor of. This guy is not so much an 
O'Hara, Ashbury type of person. He's more like, what if a houseman was a bartender at Kent Street? Let's hear what he has to say. All right, Alice, this is not going to be well organized, but I will let you chop it up and use whatever might be useful. I mean, again, the voice. Like, if if Matthew didn't already have a podcast, which is called Slee Ricketts, it's about poetry. I am an official co-host these days. Uh, if he didn't already have one, you'd, he'd have to make one. This is Matthew Buckley-Smith talking about Speed, a Pastoral by John Forbes. Uh, you asked me for five minutes, and I know I have a tendency to go long, so I went ahead and put a frozen pizza in the oven downstairs, and that way I know that if I go over uh, 15 or 20 minutes, then uh, the house will burn down. So as a dumb American, I went to a dumb American college, and I had a, a dumb but extremely ambitious and uh, Australia-philic poetry teacher who uh, who had us buy a copy of the, the, of the, uh, the very handsome Brandel and Schlesinger John Forbes collected poems. And I read them and didn't understand a lot of them, but I, I liked them. And, you know, probably unavoidably, I also fell a little bit in love with the image of John Forbes as a latter-day poet Modi. So it turns out we had already spoken about John Forbes. I'd forgotten about this. So I did recently with John Forbes what I just as recently promised that I don't do anymore, which is I pretended not to like him in order to seem cool. And it was Alice's fucking fault. I think in an early conversation with Alice, I mentioned that I hadn't heard of all that many Australian poets, uh, but I mentioned John Forbes' name and she sort of scoffed. And I think we we agreed that he was probably the Australian Bukowski and we both kind of uh, laughed him off. And, and I mean, oh, you know, partly like in, in, in fairness to myself, I hadn't read him in some 15, 20 years, but uh, but I definitely betrayed my younger self. Until recently, Alice said, you know, she'd never really spent much time with John Forbes, and she she looked at him and, and studied his poetry again and found it really lovely and moving and charming and strange. And uh, I think I, I, I tried our old Bukowski joke, and she said, oh, no, he's nothing like Bukowski. And I, and I, I felt uh, uh, twice a fool. So um, in, all, in all sincerity, I like John Forbes. I... I don't know his poems very well, and I'm not sure what I would think if I were to go in depth with him, but I was glad to have occasion to reread Speed, a pastoral, because I think it's a pretty fucking good poem. There are a couple moments in it that had stuck with me over the years. The, the beginning, it's fun to take Speed and stay up all night, which has a cadence and a sense that stuck in my mind as a formula, and I... I couldn't quite place it, but I knew that it was familiar. And rereading this recently, I realized, oh, that's the beginning of Obad, Philip Larkin's uh, also famously uh, unremittingly bleak poem, uh, in his case about uh, alcohol and death. It begins, I work all day and get half drunk at night, which at least to my ear has a little bit of the 
the cadence of it's fun to take speed and stay up all night both because uh of the intoxication and the phrasing and the and and the conclusion on the word night but also because of the the only half convincing jauntiness and this is a poem that you know i think it it really lives on its tone because if you were to read it as a series of logical propositions it's it's full of like weird contradictions or redundancies. I mean, you know, much of it doesn't seem to make sense if you try to follow it uh, syllogistically, one statement to the next. It's fun to take speed and stay up all night. Not writing those reams of poetry just thinking about is bad for you. Of course, like he, he is writing this in a poem in which he's thinking about the reams of poetry, which you know is a kind of, um, what's the name of that rhetorical uh, uh, device? Apophasis, something like that? Ap- I think it's apophasis. I don't have time to look it up because my fucking pizza is going to burn. Um, instead, your feelings follow your career down the drain and find they like it there. So your feelings are going down the drain, even though you said it's fun, but they do like it there among an anthology of fine ideas bound together by the chemical in your... I mean, which again, like an anthology of fine ideas, presumably this means that you are in fact thinking about all those reams of poetry just thinking about is bad for you. Uh... And when Keats comes to Dine or Flaubert, you can answer their purities with your own less negative ones. I mean, which is like, is that sort of a joke because of Keats' negative capability? I knew it. I knew Matthew was going to mention this. Liam mentioned negative capability as well. I did look it up. It's from something Keats said in a letter where he's saying, great thinkers, people like Shakespeare, are capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Uh, also, apophasis? apophasis is the raising of an issue by claiming not to mention it. Maybe it's a huge stretch to think that Forbes was going for the idea of negative capability, but capable of being in uncertainties is a pretty, it's a pretty huge prerequisite for making friends with this poem. You do have to set aside... Um, any irritable reaching after fact and reason but still he tempts you to reach after fact and reason it feels like reason's in there but then his less negative purity if this is if this is one it seems to be just a non sequitur or it seems to be maybe just like a like a an associative tangent for example it's a great like james wright-esque uh all-purpose transition phrase right um, and then suddenly, for example, uh, for example, you know Dransfield's line that once you become a junkie, you'll never want to be anything else. That is a great line. And I remembered that line, though I attributed it in my uh, recollection to Forbes himself. Maybe that's, I, I don't know Dransfield. Maybe that, I don't know if that's Dransfield's original phrasing. If it's not, it's a pretty good phrasing and I suspect it might be better than the original. We will return to Matthew, don't you worry. For now, I think... Think I better make it look like I'm working. Alright, it's Thursday. Thursday the 25th. I've actually, I've been thinking about how uh, empty it's going to feel when I don't have this to do each day. It's been so good so far. So... I know we said to stay out of the biographical detail, but I have been in touch with Aidan Coleman, who is a writer from Adelaide, a poet down in Adelaide, 
and uh, he's writing biography of John Forbes, and so I have to talk to him. <laughs> I mean, I want to talk to him, but also, like, I have to talk to him. And there's been something, there's been a few things that have been on my mind as I've been making this that I just, I really feel like I need to ask. So I'm going to do that now. He wrote this poem in the early 1980s and he was still living in Sydney then. His life probably wasn't going that well at the time. Um, he had abandoned his master's thesis on Frank O'Hara. Um, he uses the word career in his poem. That, that crops up in a few poems in this decade, always used ironically, the idea of uh, a poetry as a career. He wasn't really happy with how poetry as a career was going, but also sort of doggedly uh, staying on that path of what he, he considered his, his vocation. So one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is the fact that Forbes is really a Sydney poet, even though I read him so much as somebody from down here in Melbourne, but this poem was very definitely written in Sydney. It's a Sydney poem. Often there's a big divide I see between Melbourne and Sydney. Sydney's like this glitzy, happy city. Uh, <laughs> Melbourne's more, well, thinks of itself at least as a, a philosophical, reflective place, I suppose. But it's a good city to be miserable in and um, to have a midlife crisis in. But I think Forbes actually reinvented himself to some extent in Melbourne and actually enjoyed that that more more sober <laughs> sort of um, way of life in Melbourne. Sydney and Melbourne aside, I don't think I've ever been quite so conscious of the sheer number of male voices that I have on my podcast as I am right now. And everybody I talk to points to another guy or another set of guys. And I wondered if there was something about Forbes' work that was that, that was particularly male. You know, the, the, the sense I get from the readings, there, there was a lot of machismo and sort of blokiness there. And um, Pam Brown in particular talks about someone like Forbes would read a poem and there'd be a scrum of men around him sort of praising it, patting him on the back, that sort of thing. I know um, women who are fans of Forbes poetry, but his real fans, his diehard fans, all, uh, do seem to be male. What Aidan said about the poem, about this poem specifically, made me think that maybe there's a, a macho aspect to it that I have been blind to up until this point. I think... Um, the important way to read it is, of course, what Forbes thought of Michael Dransfield. He has one of his best reviews, I think, written in the late 80s, about six years after he wrote this poem. And it's called Two, Two Cheers for Michael Dransfield, and it's in Scripsy. And basically, he, he described a lot of Dransfield's work as a sort of high-grade consumerism or um, a, you know, a high-grade advert. And I think he thought drugs were sentimentalised in Dransfield's work. They they fulfil a lot of those romantic clichés that the, the reading public were keen for. And I, I think he thought Dransfield sort of consumed that image of himself. So is it Dransfield who's consuming himself like a mortgage? For Forbes... Drugs were part of life, not to be 
feared or moralized about, but not to be sentimentalized or, you know, um, exalted in, in the sort of way that romantics did. So I think um, this poem, especially the title, the pastoral element of this poem, is a sort of digger romantic assumptions. And, you know, in, in this review of Dransfield, he says one of the problems with Dransfield's poetry is that he didn't have a problem with poetry. There's no grappling with what what is this art? What am I doing with these words? Why do I just assume this speaking voice? There's no sort of uh, reflection there. Which brings us back to Liam's theory. I'm wondering if what he's saying is that Dransfield's pursuit of a mystic or something in, in, in drugs, in heroin, is somehow a, a pursuit of an absolute, is somehow an attempt to move beyond this kind of uncertainty that negative capability is. And that, you know, that's the risk of... It would, the, the story of Icarus say, you know, if you want this absolute, you fly so close to the sun that you get burned. Mm. What is it? Six, six, eighteen. I have been up for a long time. I'm not going to lie. I have to give this talk today. It's not even anything. It's not even a big deal at all. But, yeah, I've just been really, really nervous about it for weeks. Uh, which is really frustrating because I used to get up on stage at least twice a week, if not three times. Uh, didn't care at all and now this kind of thing it just feels way more challenging than it needs to that has nothing to do with John Forbes but that's that's where I'm at it went fine of course it went fine (laughs) oh lordy when will I realize that it's just not it's not worth it. It is just not worth the worry, Alice. So I heard back from Ben the other day, Ben Michelle, Alan Wern's student, and he has recorded his poem, Speed, a Pastoral Prequel. I so appreciate him doing this. I, I don't know Ben at all. Uh, we've had one phone conversation and a couple of emails, so I don't want to speculate about uh, anything to do with his relationship to poetry, but but I do know people. Um, in fact, I met one just the other day who have who started out in poetry, and then and then stopped. And this is a this is a fascinating thing to me. You know, I've talked on here before about quitting, and I guess I just I want to bring that up because. I wonder what it felt like for Ben to go back to this poem after 23 years and record it. It was beautiful to hear him read it. It is, it is meant as a lead-in to the poem itself. Speed, a pastoral prequel for Alan Wern and John Forbes. Mostly John Forbes. Wern told me a pastoral was reflective. Forbes has never told me anything. He's been dead a while now, see. Reflective of the land, Wern told me. Well, I'm from the bush, or what city freaks with small feet call the bush. Grandad and his brother, my great-uncle Max, had a farm. They named it the Ponderosa. 
See, I told you I was from the bush. They had horses and sheds full of hay. I can remember shooting guns and riding same said horses. Riding those horses in yellow shorts. Lemon yellow shorts. And my sister, stuck in a stirrup, dragged by one leg along the dustiest of plains, fence nonetheless. I smoked loosened tube cigars, granddad's laughter in my ear, a blessing. Molasses by the drum galore, 44 gallons and then some. See, I told you I was from the bush. Those lemon yellow shorts have been playing on my mind like a day naked at Pony Club. Now, I'm not sure if my feet have always been this big or I'm just another city freak with a penchant for staying awake. It's fun to take speed and stay up all night. John Forbes, Speed, a pastoral. Wait, is this the first time you've read this? Yep. Okay, go for it. It's fun to take speed and stay up all night, not writing those reams of poetry, just thinking about... Let him leave the room. Thought streams. Well, that's sad. Drugs are bad. I don't do drugs. I don't like drugs. Um, yeah, you are a famously non-drug, non-alcohol, like... Yeah, I've got X's written on every one of my appendages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it kind of feels like... Um, uh, like writing a poem about writing poems, like taking drugs and writing poems about taking drugs and writing poems feels both meta and also very sad. Like, like almost like like there should be a diagnosis for like, okay, stop that, take a take a break. I think now, like just go outside for a little bit because this is not healthy. Um, you nailed it. You nailed it. That's, that's it. That's what it's about. You, you don't you don't need drugs to say sir sir leave the room. Someone else should be coming in saying sir sir. Both of get you. Out. Everybody get out of this room. Yes. <laughs> it is Saturday afternoon. The sun is out. The picnickers are out. People are chilling out massive. It's great to see. Good on you, Melbourne. Give it up. So we finally have some dissent. Finally. Finally, someone who doesn't like this poem. <laughs> Cameron, my fellow Slee Ricketts co-host, has weighed in. I don't know Cameron super well yet. I am really looking forward to getting to know him better. What I know about Cameron is he's 19 years old and he goes to Oxford. Those two facts just in and of themselves are both very fascinating to me. I've been to Oxford once. I was really surprised at how much it looks like Hogwarts. I know that Hogwarts looks like it, but, I mean, it looks like Hogwarts. So what does Cameron have to say? Well, Cameron says, I'll admit it, after about a half dozen readings of this, I am still rather ambiguous over whether I like it. The poem is written, on first glance, in a style I find mostly too prosaic. A little voice in me nags about how, if you remove the line breaks, would this be at all poetry, or just a heap of prose? But there are sonic elements that make for a good undercurrent for repeated readings. He doesn't sound very convinced at all, does he? 
Cameron makes an excellent point, though, about the title, about the choice of speed. Because, of course, if, if it were heroin, a pastoral, it wouldn't work. Or if it was coke, a pastoral, it would be different again. Cameron says, but it is speed which creates an interesting ambiguity. Of course, it's speed the drug, but there's also motion. And before I read the poem, I thought of speed in that context. Although it begins with a moment of inertia, there is, I think, assisted by the lack of grammar, a building pace, a hurtling motion, until we reach those final lines, which are, I think, the best written and most crafted element of the entire poem, where we see Dransfield's death beautifully, shatteringly metaphorized. So everyone, even Cameron, uh, everyone is convinced by the Dransfield section. And as Ken said, the poem propels you there. Suddenly you've arrived and there are these lines which, as Ken put it, have an air of being clear and obvious, though they're not. Matthew was really into this section. And then this just exquisite closing image. Just heart-wrecking last image. As if another, another, uh, another sort of James Wright uh, multi-purpose transition phrase. Well, I think he died too soon. As if he thought drugs were an old-fashioned teacher. And he was the teacher's pet. Who just put up his hand and said quietly, Sir, sir. And heroin let him leave the room. Oh, man. Am I a terrible person? I I don't feel that moved by it. At least not yet. Lou said some really interesting stuff too about this this image of Dransfield the poet, you know, who how he wrote his work and what we lionize in him that I think are really useful here. You know, people have that idea that you you're like a true poetic genius if you can just like Kubla Khan it, like if you can just sit down and take opium and then the gods speak to you and you just write like a first draft and it's like the best poem ever written. Uh, and I find it a really weird concept that we uphold this idea of like that's someone that we should admire and that's what poetic genius really is because what's to admire in that? It, the person themselves kind of isn't even part of the process. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there is anything to admire. Maybe that's why I'm stuck on these lines. When I was out for that walk yesterday, you know, my friend said to me, you hate men like this. Why? <laughs> why are you spending so much time with one? Yeah. I need to think about this some more. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedar cover, a savage place, as holy and enchanted as air beneath a waning moon was haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover. It's true that I do hate the idea of artists being given special dispensation to behave poorly just because they're talented. Every time I look at this poem, 
I'm looking at it on the Jacket website, and underneath Speed of Pastoral, there's a passage written by John Tranter, and he describes John Forbes this way. Sometimes exasperating, always talkative, occasionally provocative, John was a dedicated, talented, brilliant and erudite poet, one of the best Australia has ever produced. And it's there in Gig Ryan's forward as well, she says, our friendship was volatile, to say the least. I know that this wasn't necessarily an easy man to get on with. Underneath Tranter's passage, you can see a picture of John. He's standing there with three other poets. It looks like they're at a reading of some sort. And the other three men are are standing there holding beers and looking at each other. But John's looking at the camera with this expression that, to me, suggests that he's not entirely there. He's kind of standing a little bit outside what's going on. So in the middle of the night last night, I realized something that shifted the entire last section of this poem. I kind of zeroed in on on the for example, the fact that the last section is an example of a less negative purity. So one of the things that Matthew said in his reading was, you know, of, of course Dransfield died too soon. He was 24 years old. You'd be crazy not to call that too soon. But in this section, Forbes kind of sets it up as like, well, I think he died too soon. Which makes me think maybe Keats and Flaubert's purities would run something like this. Like, Dransfield had to die young. He had to die for his art. Art had to come first. I mean... Dransfield's most well-known collection is called Drug Poems. Drugs were part of making the work. And I think that purity that Forbes is pointing to here is that idea of sacrifice everything for the art. And he's challenging that. He's not buying into it. We know that he had his own addictions. We know he wasn't a perfect person. But he didn't agree with that kind of purity. Like, I'm sure that Forbes worked insanely hard at his poems and put them before pretty much everything else in his life at moments and probably let a whole bunch of people down through doing that. Uh, Those are just guesses based on my own uh, experience of doing exactly the same thing. But it seems like fundamentally he doesn't see a person like Dransfield as heroic or romantic or more... Uh, important because of that purity, because of the position of art in his life and what it took to make the art and the fact that it it took his life. I think that's where the school teacher metaphor and being the teacher's pet starts to make sense. It's like it's like it's taking the easy way out. That's where I'm at with it today anyway. It's really nice outside and there are no windows in the office where I'm recording today so I'm gonna go. <laughs> do something else well it's Monday 29th of August about 10 past 8 I wanted to get straight into it today I'm in a great mood it's just the weather's warm it's gonna be spring really soon I just I feel really really good there's there's something about when Melbourne starts to warm up It's like it's a surprise to us every single time that we made it. (laughs) 
<laughs> it doesn't even get that cold, but it can be so dreary. So I'm realizing that I I need to start putting this poem away now. I need to start, uh, you know, bring coming to some kind of conclusion, some kind of conclusion here. The thing that frees me from wanting to say something really wise is the fact that I'm pretty certain that I've spent more time on this than uh, Forbes would have at this point. And I think that anything I said that was reaching for a wise conclusion, he would just laugh at. One thing I do want to point to with these last few lines is just how, how loose they are. The well, the just the quietly, I'm not sure he needs any of that. It's very, yeah, it's very loose and discursive and um, casual at the end there. Casually referring to Dransfield's death. And I think the thing that has been confusing me this whole time, the thing that maybe separates me from these lines a bit, is that I don't quite understand Forbes' relationship to Dransfield. Because in my world, Michael Dransfield is a minor poet who we don't think about or refer to pretty much at all. I have here my Penguin Book of Australian verse that I picked up a couple of months ago. One of the things I love most about these anthologies is the funny little bios that they have. My great uncle Jack is here. (laughs) I love how they sum up his life. John Blight, born at Unley in South Australia, Blight now lives by the sea in Queensland. The sea is the chief inspiration of nearly all of his best poetry. (laughs) What would you think of that? Dransfield's bio reads like this. Michael Dransfield, 1949 to 73. Dransfield had his first book of verse, Streets of the Long Voyage, published in 1970. A career of great promise was cut short by his early death. And at around the time that this anthology was published, this is first published in 1972, Forbes would have been, he would have been writing for a little while. He probably would have just been coming into his own. And I imagine that Dransfield was more of a presence, even in the early 1980s when Speed of Pastoral was written, than he is now. But I still think the choice to write about him is, I think even then it would have been a little strange. I want to read a poem by Dransfield from this anthology. And then I think I'm going to give the final word on this to Matthew because I think I think he pretty much saw it immediately, what it's taken me all month to come around to. Here we go. Second to last page in the book. This is a poem called Ground Zero. Wake up, look around, memorize what you see. It may be gone tomorrow. Everything changes. Someday there will be nothing but what is remembered. There may be no one to remember it. Keep moving. Wherever you stand is ground zero. A moving target is harder to hit. That ending reminds me of the end of my favorite Gwendolyn Brooks poem, which is the second half of a little set called Gay Chaps at the Bar, which is about 
soldiers coming home from war, from the front specifically. And it ends, uh, it's very dry and it's, it's spoken in a kind of an abstract and impersonal tone. But then in the Sestet, we kind of address death directly. So this is, this is the end of Gwendolyn Brooks' uh, poem, Still Do I Keep My Look, My Identity. And even in death, a body like no other, on any hill or plain or crawling cot, or gentle for the lilyless hasty pall, having twisted, gagged, and then sweet ceased to bother, shows the old personal art, the look, shows what it showed at baseball, what it showed in school. So she she winds the life of the soldier, you know, dying of gas or some other horror, all the way back to the life of the child. It's something Homer does in the Iliad when, when Achilles is murdering some motherfucker. He, he, he flashes us back to the moment of that guy's birth and the joy that his mother felt on holding him for the first time. And here I think it's it's sort of it's even more poignant in a funny way with Forbes because Dransfield is so obviously a stand-in for himself. And so by giving us this, you know, showing us Dransfield as a child, it's sort of like showing the baby pictures of your daughter's shitty boyfriend. You think like, well, he he looked pretty he looked pretty cute then. What went wrong? Um, by showing us Dransfield as in this this image of Dransfield as a child, he makes it impossible for us not to feel for him, despite the drugs. I mean, he he makes he finds a way to depict drugs as uh, innocent. But in this case, unlike Brooks or Homer, he's not just making a case for his character. He's also soliciting sympathy for himself, and he's maybe making it he's making it impossible to hold him to the nonsensical terms of his argument. He's so charming and he's so persuasive and he's so delicate in his phrasing that he persuades us to follow him all the way to the end. And then panhandles a little sympathy, a little mercy from us. And I'm a total sucker for this point. I fall for it every fucking time. Sweet. That was very quiet, it looks like. Um. It's Tuesday night, August 30th. I am about to interview Eric Jensen, who is the editor-in-chief of the Saturday paper. And uh, as you can imagine, I feel extremely calm, extremely calm about this. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm way too early. And... Um, <laughs> I've tried to record an entry twice today, but both times I listened back and there was just way too much going on in the background. So this is my third attempt. At this point, I just want to see whether I have the poem or not. It's a slippery little thing. I've tried this a few times and it, it doesn't always work. Let's see how we go. Speed, a pastoral. It's fun to take speed and stay up all night. Not writing those reams of poetry just thinking about is bad for you. Instead, your feelings follow your career down the drain and find they like it there, among an anthology of fine ideas 
bound together by a chemical in your blood that lets you stare the TV in its vacant face and cheer, consuming yourself like a mortgage. And when Keats comes to dine or Flaubert, you can answer their purities with your own less negative ones. For example, you know Dransfield's line, how once you become a junkie, you never want to be anything else. Well, I think he died too soon. As if he thought drugs were an old-fashioned teacher, and he was the teacher's pet, who just put up his hand and said quietly, Sir, sir, and heroin let him leave the room. Well, the sun is going down. It's August 31st. I'm still really on a high from talking with Eric last night. It was such a thrill to meet him. I can't wait to share that one with you. Forbes did come up momentarily. Unsurprisingly, I'm starting to realize that he is everywhere. At this point, I really just want to thank everybody for contributing to this. Certainly didn't make these episodes on my own. So thank you to Ken, to Lou, to Alan and Ben, to Aiden, to Kay for the walk, Cameron, Liam, Matthew, and Eleanor for the idea and the cheerleading. And just so you guys know, Eleanor actually did the Sealy Challenge. She read a book of poetry every single day for the month of August. And not only that, she reviewed each book on her YouTube channel. An insane amount of work. Insane. So I will link to that in the show notes so that you can meet her and hear her exceptional and very open-hearted criticism and thoughts on all those books. I've had a couple of really lovely notes already on the first part, which is always great because when I do something like this, there's always that voice that's like, this is the dumbest idea you've ever had, Alice. (laughs) So I appreciate the feedback. I really do. Um, So Adam wrote to ask me, why Forbes? And Tom actually asked me this last night as well. And... Yeah, it's like Lou said, he's a legend, and I knew that. But as usual, I just went on instinct. I didn't really know why him and why this poem when I started out. But I definitely know why now. Harry also wrote with a very fair question. (laughs) They said... How did you avoid Forbes for this long? (laughs) Which, uh, look, the answer to that is, Harry, that every time I went into readings and saw this John Forbes collected poems on the shelf, I felt a vague sense of antipathy and resistance and didn't buy it and didn't buy it and didn't buy it and didn't read him. 
Uh, and now the joke's on me because I borrowed this copy of The Collected from the library. And this book is out of print. I ordered it from Glee Books this week and my order was refunded. So you can't get one for love or money. Joke is on me. I'll find one though, don't worry. I regret dismissing him. I regret avoiding him for so long. As I say that, I sort of realize that in a lot of ways I didn't avoid him because he is in the water. Everything that I have read um, that's been written in the last 20 odd years makes a lot more sense to me now. I think the thing I'm most glad of uh, today at the end of the month is that this poem still refuses to fully untangle itself. Like it would have been terrible if uh, on August 15th I had a really clear idea of what was going on, but that didn't happen. That absolutely did not happen here. I'm also really glad that I've read this whole book, the collected poems. I read the, the last section, the previously uncollected, a couple of days ago. Uh, sitting in an extremely uh, overly uh, gentrified all white cafe and just thought oh this is not this is not the place to finish a John Forbes collection but that's that's where it happened there are just so many even in the uncollected poems there are so many good poems I did find another reference to Dransfield that I want to bring in here this is in a poem called Elegy in memory of Martin Johnston, and it starts with an epigraph from Auden, Into the Country of Unconcern. Yes, that's where you've gone, I guess, along with Bob and Buckmaster and Dransfield. If you include our elders who died before their time, Campbell, Buckley, Macaulay, Gilbert, Webb, it's quite a list. And now that each drink helps turn my liver into dreck, I want to ask you this. Are we poets supposed to connect to some tradition of pointless Australian death? The answer's there in the poem. Obviously not. And I think that sentiment is there in Speed of Pastoral as well. Ideally, we wouldn't wait until uh, it's time to write the elegy to celebrate people who write work that we love. Ideally, we'd celebrate the legends while they're still alive. I want to come back to Ken's essay, though. One of the things that I read there that rang out at me was this sentence, Forbes didn't have much time for nostalgia. I really hope that none of this comes across as nostalgic. I hope it comes across as the very opposite of nostalgic, actually. I mean, if nothing else, all the mistakes and misinterpretations and misrepresentations and blind spots that are in uh, these episodes would probably preclude this from being nostalgia on their own. This is not a history of anything except for me reading a poem and talking to you over the past 31 days.
I'm very glad I did it. I'm very glad you listened. I'm going to borrow another sentence of Ken's to end with. John has gone, but the poems remain. Often dazzling, nearly always light and serious at the same time. And they help you feel smarter and more alive yourself. <laughs>